If you would, open up your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll tell you, this, is, this isn't going to be a normal sermon for several reasons. One is a normal sermon should only have three points, and this has ten. We're going to go through ten points today. What we're going to do is we're just going to walk right through it and ask, what in the world should we believe about life after death? And so let me go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Dear Lord, over the past couple months here at Rayford Road, and, and even in the news, that death has been a prominent theme. There have been funerals of people we love. Um, we are expecting to see more funerals soon. It's been in the media. And so we want to understand death from your perspective and understand what you would have us to know and to understand about it. Pray that you will give us sharp minds and tender hearts as we open up your word. Pray it in your name. Amen. As you can see, 1 Corinthians 15 is a pretty long chapter. So what I'm going to do is we're going to, we're going to walk through the whole, read the whole chapter, but we're going to just take it piece at a time. And so I'll start reading in verse 1. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed to you, I passed on to you as most important what I also received. And here he's, he's, he says, I've given you the gospel, and now he's going to explain what is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that, according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to the twelve. He appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, and most of them are still alive. That's at the time that Paul was writing this. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one abnormally born, he appeared to me, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was in me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. And here's where we'll start our attention in verse 12 he says now if christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead but if there is no resurrection from the dead then christ has not been raised and if christ has not been raised then our proclamation is without foundation and so is your faith in addition we are found to be false witnesses about god because we have testified about god that he raised up christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone." 
told you I'm going to give you 10 points. And the first point that I want to show you is from verse 12. And that's that there are people in this world who believe that after this life, there's nothing else. They do not believe in life after death. And that has been the case all the way since Paul was writing, at least. Because people were saying in the Corinthian church that once you die, maybe you're just dead. And there's people in our times that still believe that. I want to read to you. In fact, if, if you go to school, if you send your kids to school to study science, science will tell them that the only thing that exists is nature, right? Only what you can see in nature. There's nothing supernatural. And this is what, um, base, he's a philosopher, he's, a not, he's not a Christian, and this is what he's saying about what we learn from nature, He says this. His name is Bertrand Russell. He says, But even more purposeless, more void of meaning, is the world which science presents to our belief. He said, Amid such a world, if anywhere, our ideals henceforth must must find a home. So let me just pause before I keep going. He's saying the way we think, according to Bertrand Russell, has to be thinking in a world that's purely natural. No big purpose. This is what he says. He says that man, this is what we need to believe, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end of which they were achieving. That is his origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental uh, co of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages and all the devotion and all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction, extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. He says, all these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of, and listen to what he calls this, unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. That is the worldview that a purely scientific approach to reality brings us. It says there is no purpose for which you are here. You are merely an accidental collection of atoms. The best thing that you can do in life will not amount to anything because in the end our universe will be destroyed and no one will remember us anyway. And what Bertrand Russell says is until you can accept that, you'll never begin to think well. And that's what he's asking us to believe. That's what we're asking our students to believe in most of our science classes all across our country. As we kept reading, Paul says, if those people were right, then Christianity would be completely wrong. In verse 13, he says, if that was true, then Christ was never raised, right? Verse 13, he says, if that were true, then Christ has not been raised. 
He says in verse 15, if what Bertrand Russell said was true, that there is nothing beyond death, he says, then all Christians are liars. Because the Christian message is that Christ has been raised from the dead and that we will be raised just like him. He said, this can't be right because then all we've ever said is a lie. And then he says this. He says what Bertrand Russell actually agreed with. He says, and if that's true, then we are to be pitied above all men. Bertrand Russell thinks that all men should be pitied because there's no purpose to us whatsoever. But Paul says we should be pitied above, even above the average man because we've had a false hope. If what they're saying is true, then Christianity is a hoax. Because Christianity cannot exist side by side with a worldview that says nothing happens after you die. It says there's no room for that in Christianity. So let's keep looking at what Paul says. We'll move to verse 20. He says, but, and this is what he's going to say, there's, there's more hope than what Bertrand Russell and naturalists say. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of all who fall asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection from death also comes from a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. When it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. We're on our third point here. He says, these guys who say that there's no afterlife, he says, they're wrong. And I'll tell you why they're wrong. They're wrong because it doesn't make sense theologically. I'll give you three reasons. One, he says... The reason all of us die is because one man brought sin into the world. He says, and that's the same reason we're all going to live. It's because one man brought life into the world. He says, theologically, what's the purpose of Jesus Christ if it's not life? He came so that we can live. It's the theological message of who Jesus is. And he says it's not just that Jesus has been raised from the dead, it's that Jesus promises to raise everyone who is in him, just like him. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one raised, but everyone that's in him will be raised just like him. Right? Theologically, life after death has to happen because Jesus was raised and he's promised to raise us all. And then that's the third big thing. Is he says, and I'm going to eliminate death altogether. He says, there's coming a day when there just won't be death. It'll be under his subjection. He is tarrying, this verse said. He is waiting so that everything comes under his control. And then in the final blow, even death will be under his control and it will be no more. That's the hope we're looking for. He says, theologically, Christianity has no room for a not eternal existence. 
We cannot accept this, I die and then I'm done mentality. Let's keep moving. The fourth one, he says, he says, but even if you don't accept this theologically, maybe experientially, maybe just looking around the world and some observations can help us out. Let me read to you what he says starting in 29. He says, otherwise, what will they do or what will they say who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I affirm by the pride that you have, uh, the pride in you that I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, I die every day. If I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope, what good would that do to me? He says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God, and I say this to your shame. He gives us two big experience things. And the first one is kind of tricky. Because he says, look, if there wasn't life after death, then what about these people who baptize their dead? And nowadays we say, who's baptizing their dead? Right? Because that wasn't a Christian practice. It wasn't really even a Jewish practice. Most scholars think that what Paul's saying is even false religions expect an afterlife. Even these people who baptize their dead, he could have said, if there wasn't afterlife, then why do Egyptians put up pyramids to keep their mummies in? If there wasn't an afterlife, why does, have you ever seen Lion King? Why does Simba think his father turned into a star? Like every religion thinks when my dad dies, he's not gone forever. Even false religions have a sense of there's more to life than this life. And he's saying, it's just built into you. Don't you know that everybody says there's more to life than living and dying? That life does matter. Bertrand Russell is wrong that the best we can hope for is unyielding despair. He says, no, life matters. And then he says this. He says, if living and dying was all that there was, why in the world would anybody sacrifice for somebody else? He says, think about what I do for you. I die every day on your behalf. It's like, I'm willing to go into, he talks about going into Ephesus where he would be stoned to share the gospel so that people could have everlasting life. Why would he do that if it didn't matter? Why would I sacrifice for somebody if they were just dying too? It doesn't make any sense. He says, morally speaking, we know that there is honor and goodness in sacrificing for other people because we believe that people matter. If we live and we die and it's done, then people don't matter. He says, experientially, can't you see that people are more significant than just, I'm alive and I die and that's it? Every other religion sees it and they're wrong, but they at least see that there's something more to eternity than life and death, that it goes on that we matter. And then he makes the fifth observation I want to make for you guys is he says, because of that, you need to stop listening to people like Bertrand Russell. He says, bad company is going to corrupt good morals. He says, there is no way that you can go in day to day and hear that people don't matter. They're just accidents. They're going to live and they're going to die and it doesn't matter. And you still be a good person. 
He says, our entire moral worldview is built on the idea that people matter. So don't give up on that. Don't start listening to these people who say, no, we're just accidents. We're just a collision of atoms. We're nothing more than an accident. He says, no, that's, that's not right. Don't listen to those people. Don't even give them your ears because it will make you into a person who doesn't care. It will make you into Bertrand Russell who says that the world is full of unyielding despair. He said, that's not what you want to be. Don't listen to them. We have to, we have to keep the mentality that after our life is eternal life. It's foundational to all that Christianity is. And Paul says it's not just foundational to all of Christianity, it's foundational to all of life, to all of ethics, that the idea that we live and that we will live forever is the foundation to what makes us who we are as human beings. So don't give up on that. So let's keep looking. We're going to go to number six, but before we do that, let me read to you, starting in verse 35, and this is a really long section. I'll start in 35. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body are they going to have when they come? (laughs) Foolish one, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the future body. It's just a seed. It says, perhaps of wheat or another grain, but God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly bodies. There's a splendor of the sun and another for the moon, another for the stars. For one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown in a natural body, raised in a spiritual body. It says, if there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, who is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Man was first made from the earth and made of dust. The second man is of heaven. Like the man made of dust, so are those who are made of dust. And like the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. So number, point number six is Paul's addressing this question of what are our bodies going to look like? And his answer is, it's better than you can imagine. Right? He says, foolish ones. You ask this question, what am, what's my body going to look like? Right? So I'm going to die. I'm going to go into the earth. My molecules are then going to be used by a tree to become its, you know, like I'm... I don't understand what my body's going to look like. And he says, of course you don't understand this question. He said, that'd be like an acorn trying to imagine what an oak tree looks like. Right? A seed of grain, a seed trying to understand what grain fields look like. 
He's like, you, of course you can't imagine this. He's like, I can't even imagine this. This is beyond, this is so far beyond me as it would, as I said, like an acorn, as an oak is beyond an acorn. He says, but it's better. It's way, way better. He says, because what's your, what's your life right now like? Right now, he says, right now, the old body, it's a corrupt body. He says, but your new one is going to be incorrupt. Your old body, the bodies we're in right now, is dishonorable. But your new body is glorious. The old body is weak. The new body is raised in power. So your old body is just, it's just natural. But your new body is spiritual. It's like, of course you can't understand that. It's foolish to even think you could. But I'm promising you, you're going to be happy. No oak tree says, man, I wish I was an acorn again. You're going to be happy with it. C.S. Lewis has helped me kind of imagine a little bit. It's a fiction book that he writes in the silver chair. Um, And Aslan, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. Prince Caspian becomes King Caspian. He gets really old and he, he dies. And as his, when he dies, he gets to go into Aslan's country, which is kind of a metaphor for heaven. And two people get to go and watch him. And I want to read to you kind of how C.S. Lewis describes what happens to him. He said, son of Adam, and he's talking to Eustace, which are one of the humans who get to look on to Caspian's death. He says, son of Adam... Go into that thicket and pluck the thorn that you will find there and bring it to me. Eustace obeyed, and the thorn was a foot long and as sharp as a rapier. He says, drive it into my paw, son of Adam, said Aslan, holding up his right forepaw and spreading out the great pad toward Eustace. Must I, said Eustace? Yes, said Aslan. Then Eustace set his teeth and he drove the thorn into the, lion, to the lion's pad and out and there came out a great drop of blood, redder than all the reddest, redness that you've ever seen or imagined. And it splashed into the stream over the dead body of the king, and at the same moment, the doleful music stopped. There was a funeral dirge that was playing for Caspian. That sad music stopped. The dead king began to be changed. His white beard turned to gray, and from gray to yellow, and it got shorter and it vanished altogether. And his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh, and the wrinkles were smoothed, and his eyes opened, and his eyes and lips both laughed, and suddenly he leaped up and he stood before them a very young man, or a boy. But Jill couldn't say which, because people have no particular age in Aslan's country. Even in this world, of course, it's the stupidest children who are the most childish, and the stupidest grown-ups who are the most grown-up. And he rushed to Aslan, and he flung his arms as far as they would go around his huge neck. And he gave Aslan the strong kisses of a king, and Aslan gave him the wild kisses of a lion. And I think that's cool imagination. No particular age, but he's great. And you know what Paul's told us? This is better than you can imagine. I think I'll take what C.S. Lewis just imagined. And Paul says, no, no, it's better than you can imagine. What I'm telling you is that you will be so happy with your new body, your spiritual body. It won't be corruptible. It'll be incorruptible. 
won't be dishonorable. It'll be glorious. It won't be weak and sick or dying. It will be raised in power. He says, this is more than you can imagine, but it's the best thing that you'll ever, I was getting ready to say imagine, but you can't imagine. It's just awesome. It's just awesome. What will your new body look like? I can't answer that, but you're going to be really happy with it. Let's keep reading. Verse 50. It says, Brothers, I tell you this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Corruption cannot inherit incorruption. He says, listen, I'm telling you a mystery. He says, we're not all going to fall asleep, but we all will all be changed. He says, in just a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, he says, for the last trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will all be changed. And the corruptible will be clothed with incorruptibility, and the mortal will be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, and the mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It says, now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the seventh observation I want to make is that the effects of death are universal. Every single one of us will experience the effects of death. But Paul says, not everyone will die. Most people will die. But there will come a time when Jesus will come back and there will be people living and they will experience the effects of death. What do you mean the effects of death? He says, I will take their corruptibleness and I will cover it with incorruptibleness. I will take their mortality and I will cover it with immortality. Paul's saying that's the experience of death. It's this great exchange. It's when a seed dies and becomes a great tree, every single person will experience the move from natural to spiritual when Jesus comes back. Every one of us will. He also says that death is absolutely necessary. This is the eighth point. He says, death is necessary because a corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility. The mortal must be clothed with immortality. Why is that? Because corruption can't inherit incorruption. Doesn't that make sense? You and I, in our frail, weak, sinful state, we can't experience the glory of God. That's why Moses said, let me see your glory. And God says, I'll let you see it reflect off a rock. Rocks aren't good reflectors. And it still completely changed the way Moses looked. He says, corruptible can't see the glory of God, but you can when you put on incorruptible. You have to, and it's a good, good thing. In fact, that's the ninth point, is that it's a good thing. Death isn't all bad. Death is a good thing. But you say, no, that's not my experience. Death stings. It's bad. But Paul says, no, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? So let's try to understand this. Look again at verse 56. 
He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Have you ever, when you remember that verse, I'll just speak for myself, I always kind of remembered it differently. I thought the sting of sin is death. But he says the sting of death is sin. You see how it was flipped? I thought, well, what makes sinning so bad? What means you're going to die? He says, no, no, what makes dying so bad? It's only bad if you have sin, right? Dying is a good thing unless you have sin. Because sin puts us at enmity. It puts our relationship with God all out of whack. You don't want to inherit incorruptible. You don't want to stand before God as his enemy. He said, that's what makes death scary, is that you might step into his judgment seat as his enemy. But that's not the last word. He says, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to make it so we're not enemies with God anymore. So that there's no sin on our account anymore. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the victory. That when you and I die, if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, there's no sting. It's only joy. It's pure joy. My body will not hurt me anymore. It will not limit me anymore. I won't be ashamed of myself in any way. That's the promise. And he says, the only thing that makes death bad is your sin. But that can be all completely taken care of by Jesus Christ. Death isn't a scary thing. You don't have to be afraid of death. Not if you know Jesus. Let me make one last observation, and I'll read verse 58 to do that. It says, Therefore, my dear brothers, based on everything we've just read, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. My tenth observation is that our belief that there is life after death should affect the way we live. If you believe that this life is just a seed that will one day become an oak tree of glorious proportions, then live in light of becoming an oak tree. Live in a way that says, I want to stand before God. And that's what this part of my existence is for. I'm preparing for something that's bigger and better than this. This is why I'm happy to invest this small part of my life before the big part that's still coming in the future. Especially when I know how great that future is. How do you invest your life? The first one is you make sure that the stinger of death has been pulled out. You know that my sin has been taken care of on the cross by Jesus. I've trusted him, I've confessed my sin, and begged him to be my savior, to take it away. The second thing you do is you live your life, he says, excelling 
in the Lord's work. Being confident that what I do for God will matter in eternity. Paul said, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We live a short life here. And that short life is an opportunity. It's an investment opportunity. And the question that Paul's asking us here, or really it's not a question, it's just a wake up and do it. Invest it. You have a short life, invest it. It'll be worth it. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You have an eternity before God and you'll be happy to have spent every minute of this life in service of him. You'll be happy. That doesn't answer every question we might have about death, but it answers some big ones. Paul tells us, you cannot be a Christian and not understand that there is life after your death. That's the fundamental truth of Christianity, that God created you for a purpose, and that purpose is an eternal purpose. You cannot be a Christian without understanding that. You cannot be a Christian without understanding that I enter into that eternity through Jesus Christ. The death has a sting if I don't know Jesus, but it has no sting if that stinger has been removed by Jesus. Christianity is fully based on trusting Jesus to remove the sting of death for us. And the last thing we do is we say, because I know I'm going to stand in front of my King and my Savior, I want to live a life that is poured out and returned to Him. It's invested for His glory and not my own. That's the fundamental, that's, that's really it for Christianity. That's really it. You're here for a little bit, and then you die, and that's the start. That's the start. Live now like a seed that's looking forward to becoming grain or wheat or an oak tree. I'm going to pray for us, but then I'm also going to ask us to pray again. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray just to close our Bible study time. But I also want us to start thinking about, is there anyone in your life who you would like to pray for that is either facing death or maybe has recently died and then you want to thank God that the stinger has been pulled out? Or maybe there's someone in your life that you say, the stinger, I'm not sure that it has been pulled out. And you want to come and beg God work in their heart. I'd like to spend... Well, here's what we'll do. When I say let's pray, we're just going to spend a few minutes just being quiet and just thinking. Thinking, who do I know? And the first person to think about is yourself. Is this finger still in for you? And then secondly, who do you want to pray for? Who do you know that you are asking God, take it out. Take out that stinger and usher them into eternal life. 
So let's pray and then I'll close this after a couple minutes of silence and thinking. Dear Lord, death is universal to all humans, but it's not something we need to be afraid of because you've taken care of it for us and promised us an eternal life that is better than anything we can possibly imagine. What we ask now is that you teach us how to invest this little life we have now in preparation for that long one that we have in eternity. And we want to do that by building your kingdom. By seeing our friends and family that don't know you, we want to, see, we want to be used by you to reach them and to help them find eternal life in your presence. Will you give us wisdom to know the words to say? Give us wisdom to see the opportunities that you put in front of us. Give us a passion to share your word and your love with others. Teach us to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in your work. I pray this in your name. Amen. Before you go, I want to point out one, one more thing, is that I focused a little bit on the lost people in our lives and that was largely because Ralph Davis is on my mind but I also want to remember that Paul wrote this as a really kind of pumpy up passage our lives are short and that's something that is joyous not sad I don't want a long life in this body I'm only 36 and I already am sore and tired my baby can't sleep through the night that's not forever, though. It's just a short, it's just a seed. Eternity's ahead of us, and that's really exciting. Bertrand Russell told us that the best life we could live would be one of unyielding despair. Paul tells us the best life you can live is one of unbridled joy and excitement about what's to come. Eternity is in front of you, and it's a very exciting thing. Prepare yourself for it, but look forward to it, because it's going to be great. I'll pray one more time, and we'll dismiss. Dear Lord, thanks again. We can't wait to see you in your fullness. Until then, we pray that you will help us know you more dearly and more clearly every day, and use us to help others know you as well. We pray this in your name. Amen.